Here we go again. We're the 12 sided guys. We have Matt as Pine the Swordsman. Hi. Scott as Roos the Bounty Hunter. That's me. Jordan as Ebby the Deacon. Salutations. Sabrina as Nari the Warrior. Hey there. And me, Paul, as the guy making it all up on the fly. Thanks again for joining us. If you like what you're hearing, then maybe consider becoming a patron of the 12 Sided Guys by visiting our Patreon at patreon.com slash 12 Sided Guys. That's 1-2-S-I-D-E-D-G-U-Y-S. We have some bonus content there for our patrons, and if nothing else, maybe just buy us a coffee or a Diet Coke with no ice to show your appreciation. And if you ever hung out in the Royal Crypt hoping to kill some metal babbles, then this podcast is for you. It's the Crystal Codex, Episode 6. Well, Neum... We're finally safe and recovering. After facing the spiders and many of us suffering grievous wounds, we were able to prove the stronger and destroyed the creatures. May Lady Artarian accept their flesh. The cycle of death, decay, and life must continue. We pressed deeper into the shrine and found a room, a sort of library, encircled with bookcases filled with dusty tomes and piles of crystals, with a few still glowing softly. After digging around, I managed to find a tome in an unknown language, and the others found a number of valuable crystals. The next room was large and columned with a few skeletons strewn about, and a large central dais, or apparatus, which glowed with various colors of light. In the far corner, a very large, very old, intricately carved automaton stood up and towered over us and approached us. It attempted to strike at us even, and we were forced to defend ourselves. It fought hard, blasting us with crystal energy, but we were able to destroy this construct. In searching the central dais, we even found some sort of a disk with all the various crystals embedded in it. When I removed it, the whole apparatus seemed to shut down, and I pocketed it in my satchel. When the construct fell, a tunnel was opened on the north side of the room, and after following that tunnel for many hours, we realized we were ascending up back to the surface. We have come to a loose rubble wall where it seems we may be able to rest for a time. We can faintly hear voices speaking on the other side of the rubble. Roos and Pines said that they spoke of a white widow, and they seemed to recognize the voice of the last person to speak, a deeper voice. Who knows what lays before us, Neum, but I hope you will continue to watch over me. May the balance of nature be with me. Here we are, behind this rubble wall, in a cave, hearing voices, one of those voices coming from the past of two of our characters. So... Just a quick recap, I believe that Roos and Pine both recognized a third deeper voice that just came into the conversation through that rubble wall. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I need to know what you guys want to do. Well, Pine is very excited. So Pine is going to be less careful removing rubble now. And he's just going to start moving the wall and say, <laughs> I, I think he's going to call. He's going to call out, Tiny, Tiny, is that you? Anybody else helping Roos or helping Pine? Yeah, I'll jump in to help him. Yeah, I'll I'll notice that he's digging more eagerly and, and help as well, but kind of watching him. Yeah, same. You know, actually, I'm going to step back and start taking a moment to cover myself up with my like wrappings and travel stuff. Pine, you start to move the rocks. Nari, you're in there helping out too. Ebby, you're covering up with your with your wrappings again. And you hear from the other side of the wall, you hear... First, some alarm, like, what in the world? What's going on? And you hear a, a female higher voice say, quick, take cover. Someone's here. And then you hear a deep, deep voice say, wait, did someone just call me tiny? And then, uh, so Pine will call out, the Lord's preserve, the ladies protect. And you hear kind of a little stutter, uh, uh, and through balance, victory. Come help. Move these rocks. Move this rock. And then you actually start to get some help from the other side. As we're digging on our side, Roos leans over to, to Pine as I'm pulling rocks aside to say, how do you know that man? Well, I served with him. It's been years, but he was my, he was my, uh, my assistant, my valet hmm. during the war in Menarest. So you, well, it obviously didn't go well for you that war, but uh, it seems like, seems like we're both meeting an old friend. Well, really? My friend might be too strong of a word, but uh, I haven't seen him in about a year. And just like that, the rubble falls loose and light shines in 
through cracks and you can see that beyond this rubble wall is some kind of a, a open cave. There's a fire pit in the kind of in the center, a couple of bedrolls laid out. You see some weapons and some equipment stashed in a corner. And in front of you, you see three people. You see, first, it's hard to miss. There is a um, Nari, you're tall. You're like seven feet tall. Yeah, seven one. Seven one. Okay. Well, you see another very tall woman. But Nari, where you are big and strong, this woman is thin, almost like whip thin. She's got long blonde hair. She's got tattoos on the sides of her face. She's wearing leather and furs. She's even got some similar tattoos to you on, on her arms that you can see from what, what you can see of her arms. Next to her, you see a very small man, probably about three, three and a half feet tall. And he is wearing studded leather armor. He's got a long sword strapped. Actually, it's not strapped to his back anymore. It's in his hands. And he has like a scar across his face. And he is holding his sword out in front of him. Not like ready to swing at you, but just letting you know it's ready. And then the third person that you see is another towering figure. Dark skin, big, thick, full black beard, two nub horns on top of his head. He stands easily as tall as Nari. And you can see resting uh, behind him is a very large maul. He's wearing a vest, Opa Aladdin style. <laughs> it seems like the cold doesn't affect him very much, but this guy is big and pine. You and Roos both recognize this man, but from two different situations. The shorter man, as the rubble starts to clear, he backs up and takes a, takes a step, a guarded position closer to the fire. The tall woman kind of sits back down on her um, on her bedroll and watches what's going on. And the large man with the with the two nub horns, he steps back from the pile of rubble after it gets cleared and he looks inside and Pine, he makes eye contact with you. The blossoming storm of the western sky. Tiny. <laughs> and he bows his head to you a little bit. Oh, Tiny, no, no. <laughs> it... So many years have passed. You, there's no need to, to to bow for me. Come in. You look at you. You're you're so much older. Look at you. You've grown. Yeah, I mean, and so looking at him, you can tell. I mean, the 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 reason why I don't know if you remember this is from way back from session zero. But the reason why they called him tiny was because his mom was constantly telling him, "You're still growing. You're still growing." And here he is, like seven feet tall and just massive. He really hasn't grown anymore. So when you saw him before, he was. He's still pretty much full size, but now his beard is a lot bushier and thicker. Uh, he looks more grizzled. You see scars on his body. Why don't you make a quick uh, perception check there, Pine? Actually, anyone can make a perception check right now as well, just to kind of get a lay of the land. Oh, I rolled a nat one, so that's a three. You are so excited to see Tiny. <laughs> Ebby rolled a six. Now I got a 19. Roos got a 14. Pine, you are so excited to see Tiny that you kind of lose track of everything. You get tunnel vision looking at this big blast from the past. Ebby, you are kind of caught up, still trying to make sure you're covered and hide all your metal bits and pieces. Um, Roos, with your 14, as you are looking at the scene, you see that tiny, you see a brand on his arm, um, on his bicep, and it looks like a, a broken sword. Is this a brand that I would be familiar with? Uh, you can make a history check. Nari, you glance around the room. You see you see a couple different places where danger might come from. You see this big guy with the horns. You see the short guy. And you instantly know, don't underestimate him. But your eyes catch on the tall woman uh, who's sitting down on the bedroll. You see her tattoos and you instantly recognize them as tattoos from a, another clan up in the mountains. That is a neighbor to the clan where you grew up. Does that make sense? Like you would, you would, your clans would trade back and forth. Sometimes you'd fight and skirmish, but you see that she is from the mountains like you are. Cool. So our clans were mostly friendly. The clans. So the way it works, I mean, this is kind of how I envisioned it. The clans are allies during the winter and um, during the spring, summer and fall, um, they, they, might not be allies. They might raid each other or um, have um, some misunderstandings. Uh, but once winter comes, then um, there's like a phrase that it's just kind of up in the mountains. Everybody who's up there just kind of, it's, it's something that people live by. And that is that nobody wants to see red snow. Um, and basically the idea is that when the snows are falling, 
and blood is being spilt, nobody prospers. So everybody kind of bands together when it's wintertime. And up in the mountains where you're from, wintertime is basically six months out of the year. Nice. No, I like it. I'm going to I'm going to wink at her and just kind of set back and look at everybody. OK, what did you get for your history check, Roos? Roos rolled a 10. You've seen it around, but you're not exactly sure what it means. Um, it's not something that you see a lot, but the brand on the on the shoulder, on the bicep. But you have seen it before, rarely. My mind is instantly going back to where I met him, but it's not affiliated with the Bastion. You actually, now that you mention it, you did see it on a few other people in the Bastion. Pine, Tiny kind of kicks his foot out and clears the last of the rubble, and he, he holds out his hand to help you into the chamber. Okay, I will. I will uh, hook my cane on my on my arm, and then I will take his hand and walk over in there. Tiny, or should I say, Brinby? Oh, I I haven't been tiny for quite some time. I don't think you were ever tiny. I think your mom. I think your mother was wrong. <laughs> yes. Well, I had to grow up quickly. Yes, it was a shame. We had to we had to begin um, enlisting the young men so young. Yes, when you lose that many people that fast. All of a sudden, the only people left are the old men and the and the young men. Look at look at us. <laughs> he brings you, Pine, over into the cave. Um, you see that it's a, it's a kind of a big open uh, space. There's a couple of like natural pillars holding up the roof, and as you come in, you can see that the kind of their camp is the north half of the cave, and the southern half is full of things like supplies. You see some barrels and crates and some sacks of flour, that kind of thing. It looks like this is a place where they keep some stores. What's everybody else doing? Nari's going to kind of clear her throat and ask Pine if he wants to introduce us to all his new friends. Oh, oh yes. Sorry. This is Brinby. We uh, served together during the the war with the Empire in Menarest. Uh, I haven't seen him since, since the fall of Redleaf. He nods and he goes, it's been 15 years. Yeah, has it already? What what are you doing here? Why why are you up in the in the wilds? Oh, sorry, Brinby. This is Nari and Roos and Ebby there in the back. They've been my traveling companions for the past few days. They're good folk. Roos nods his head and says, "I didn't catch your name when we met last time. Maybe it got a little bit too explosive before we could have made each other's acquaintance." I have a question for you. Roos, when you say those things, Ty, uh, when you say those things, Brinby looks at you and you can see a, a dark look come over his face. Not like an angry look, but just kind of a depressed or a sad or a negative uh, emotion washes over his face. And he nods his head slowly and he says, yes, we need to talk as well. You had many companions there with you but there's only one person there that I care about. Did Kira survive? Okay, you say that, and you see the tall woman kind of sit up straight, and you see the short uh, guy. He, he kind of pulls the sword up a little bit more into like a, uh, like a batter swing, like he's getting ready to swing it, and then he kind of relaxes again. And then Brinby looks at you, Roos, and says, that's what we must discuss. But come in. Share our fire. Roos will step into the cave warily. Brinby points at the other two and he says, go grab some food. They must be tired. Tell me, Pine, what are you doing here in this cave? Where did you come from? Well, I've been living in Tabory after I was discharged. I, my family moved to Tabory to get away from the war that I could no longer be a part of. And I was, I've been there for the past 15 years or so. To be honest, we're looking for fallen heaven. So everything that you say, you see reactions in him. Little minuscule movements of his face, twitches of muscles next to his mouth. Um, when you say fallen heaven, he gets a little twinkle in his eye. But I want you to make an insight check. 15. Pine, when you say you were living in Tabry, you see Brinby has a reaction a bit of surprise, but you you catch on that it's feigned. You assume that Brinby knew you were living in Tabry. All right. I'll give him that for now. All right. Um, as Ebby, Roos, and Narius, you come into the cave. Ebby, you can't help but notice that you are getting you're getting the eye from both the short uh, the short man and the tall woman. Typical 
<laughs> I would imagine that I'm that I'm kind of used to people being a little mistrustful, and so I think Ebby has kind of picked up the habit of when he's around people, strangers in particular, he tends to try to stay to the sides and be as unobtrusive and try to hide himself as much as possible. Brimby says, "Why don't you all sit and gather, get some food in you?" Uh, we have a, a very special guest who is about to arrive. I think we heard through the wall. Who is this white widow? He nods and says, well, she'll be here very soon. And then you can ask her. And when he says that, he looks over at Roos. Roos nods his head, picking up on what he's saying. And then Roos will ask, so Borson didn't make it then? Brinby, he kind of lowers his head. You see his shoulders slump a little bit. Brinby tells you a story. To make this more interesting, this story is going to be described more cinematically. Okay, so this is, this is what the story, the vision that it creates in all of your minds. You see an airship flying out, clear blue sky, over a bay, leaving this massive building that hangs out over this cliff. You see that there's a hole in the wall of the, of the building and this airship is making a run for it. You see the deck of this airship. You see people standing on it. You see Brinby is standing there. You see this good-looking kind of roguish man with a goatee and uh, shoulder-length hair standing there holding the hand of a woman with long white hair. She's short. She's thin. She's very attractive. And on the other side of the large Brinby, you see Roos standing on this ship and there are explosions blasting in the sky and suddenly you see the deck of the ship gets rocked and the ship breaks in two roos you see his body flying into the air out over the bay and gone from sight and as this is brinby's story the next thing that you see is brinby waking up the his vision is uh, shaky, it's it's clouded, it's kind of pulsing um, as he tries to catch his bearings. He glances around to see what's going on. He is on half of this airship, the other half already falling into the bay. This half still somehow being held aloft, but dropping slowly, and and it is listing very quickly. As Brinby looks around, he sees two hands hanging on to the edge of the broken part of the airship. He hobbles over, reaches down, and grabs the hand of Borson, this good-looking roguish man with the goatee and the shoulder-length hair. As he's holding on, he doesn't have the strength to pull him up. And you hear uh, as things are moving and shifting and there's still explosions in the sky you hear something sliding along the deck as it continues to tilt more and more and brinby looks over to his left as he sees the white-haired beautiful woman unconscious sliding down the deck towards the edge and if she falls off you're 150 feet in the air brinby looks down at borson Borison looks up at Brinby, shakes his head, no. Brinby shakes his head, no. Borison shakes his head, yes, and lets go. As Borison falls, you see Brinby immediately lurch over and grab this beautiful white-haired woman before she can fall off. As he picks her up, he looks down at her and holds her close to his chest as he grabs onto the railing as the ship continues to tilt and drift and sink down towards the earth. And that is the story that Brinby tells you. So Borson fell to his death to save the white-haired woman who, Roos, you, you are very aware of who this woman is. And Brinby finishes the tale, and his voice has gotten very quiet, um, very soft, and you can see tears in his eyes. As Brinby finishes his tale, 
Roos wipes the tears from his eyes with his large scarf and stands up from his position and kneels down in front of the very large man through tear-filled eyes just says thank you thank you so much he he nods you can see that his eyes are distant he's he's in a different place as he finishes his tale you can just with your passive perception you hear some commotion going on further to the east of the cave and as the cave is not very big. It's probably about 30 to 40 feet across and maybe like 60 feet north to south. But it's dark in here except for that campfire. But you hear some commotion. Something's moving and shifting over on the east side. And as you are kind of glancing over there, you see in walk uh, a few armed men. They are not Imperial soldiers at all. They have spears and shields and their armor is uh, pieced together. They come walking in. They look, they've got big thick cloaks on there. It's the cloaks are covered in uh, a dusting of snow. As they come in, um, they salute Brinby and one of them steps forward and says, she's here. And as you watch, you see, um, a small shuffling shape emerge into the cave covered in a cloak and a cape covered in snow. You see she's got a crutch on um, under her left arm and she pulls back her hood. And Roos, you, you see that this is definitely your sister, Kira. Um, but it's, she doesn't look the same as last time you saw her. For the right side of her face is still very much her, but it looks like the left side of her body has been burned very badly and it's all scarred. It looks like her left eye has lost the pigment from it. Um, she is, if, if you hadn't seen her and known it was her, as she came into the cave, you would have expected to see, you would have expected her to be in her 60s or 70s, the way that she hobbled in here. She pulls back her hood and she glances around the room and Ruth, she instantly makes eye contact with you. Roos will walk over to her and just fall on his knees and in front of her and just say, I'm, I'm so glad you, you survived. I had no idea you survived. She thinks for a second and then she puts her hand on your shoulder and she bends down to whisper in your ear something that only you can hear. And she says, are you here to arrest me again. Roos stands up, lowers his scarf, and says, I will never make that mistake again. But I'm not here for you exactly. I'm here for the heir to the, the old kingdom here. She kind of puts her hand up, shakes her head no. She's like, nope. We'll eat first. Eat first, business later. We've been traveling for a long time. Come, let's get some food. And she tells the other, the other uh, ramshackle soldiers who came in with her to go and gather some food. Everyone starts sitting around the campfire and um, people start to talk and kind of share experiences back and forth. So as you are sitting around this campfire, who does, is everyone drawn to? I want to sit near, um, near Brinby, but I also was going to say, hey, um, Abby, can I have a slice of that uh, family-sized crystal pizza shield? <laughs> <laughs> Do you want some with extra cheese or pepperonis? Only if it's stuffed crust. <laughs> Actually, I was, going to say, I was going to say, hopefully before we came into this room, Abby, I think you had that, you had that crystal shield, right? Yeah, it's like in my satchel kind of under my cloak. You're keeping it concealed? Yeah. Okay. So it's it's big. I mean, I, I um, uh, stupidly described it as a family size Papa Murphy's pizza. Um, <laughs> so it will fill your satchel. So I don't think you're gonna be able to get anything else in your satchel if that's there. And and concealing it might be an issue if somebody wants to really pry and see what's in there. You know, I mean, uh, if somebody really looks at you, they're gonna notice there's something kind of bulky that you've got mm. but from behind behind like a cloak it would potentially look just like he's like maybe evie has a shield yeah 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 exactly okay yeah that's not a problem so and you're and you're all covered from head to toe anyway so 
So to get back to your question, yeah, Pine, I think, would try to sit by Brinby, but I rec- he recognizes as well that something very important is happening between Roos and this guard woman. All right. Ebby? I think, you know, Ebby, his, his experience has taught him that getting right in the middle of large groups of people is just not a wise thing. So he's just still going to kind of hang out in the outskirts. He's going to kind of position himself closer to Pine. So wherever Pine is sitting, he'll kind of be maybe behind him, just leaning up against the wall or something, kind of removing himself from the main group. Nari, where did you want to sit around the campfire? Uh, Nari's going to go sit next to uh, the other clans person. Um, okay. And see if she's got any good deets to share. Okay, yeah, perfect. Actually, that's awesome. Okay, so we'll just kind of go around the room and have some conversation. Roos, you're trying to sit next to Kira, right? Yeah, yeah, I haven't left her side yet. All right, so as you're sitting down, people, they don't talk about uh, what's been going on, like uh, business. They're not talking business at all. They're they're just talking, hey, I saw this, this... Uh, uh, owlbear out in the woods or whatever like that or you know they're, they're sharing experiences but not not like official business yet they're going to eat their meal in peace before they have to start talking about more negative things so Nari as you sit next to this woman she she leans over to you and uh, she says my name's Delan by the way hi Delan Nari what are you doing out here she says well I mean, we're not talking business yet, but as I'm sure you've gathered, I'm here with Fallen Heaven. That sounds great. She said, you know, you were pretty quiet. I would have expected a storm fist to make more noise behind that rubble wall, but I didn't even know you were there. Well, I like to kind of watch things and make sure everything's going smoothly before I make any noise. So what's what's going on with, uh, with the storm fists? We haven't been able to... Uh, trade with them for quite some time. Really, I haven't been. I haven't been back home in years. I I kind mm. of left that life behind me. Huh. Interesting. Well, we haven't spoken with any stormfists for no oh gosh two two years now. This is the second winter where trade has been cut off completely with them. Do you go back? You go back to the mountains every year. I I spend most of my time up there, but you don't know. No, I haven't been back in. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. You would know that your your family would trade with the other clans around. Um, that's always been the way, uh, especially in wintertime. You know, somebody might have extra grain and somebody else might have extra furs. And so you would trade and barter. Usually the 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 families, the clans don't survive on their own without some kind of help from the other the other groups. Can I ask her if she's seen all the other clans in the area? If it's it just our clan that's missing? Uh, she says, um, we've had contact with the other clans just as we always have. You know, we, uh, we soft paws. We pride ourselves on traveling far. And yeah, I have, I've had contact with most of the other tribes myself. The Stormfists have, um, they won't let anyone near their camps. And actually, now that I think about it, last year they didn't even come down out of the mountains at all to their to their winter hunting grounds. They stayed up way up way up high. Which Nara, you would also know that's that's odd. Um, usually, when winter comes, the tribes will move further down the mountain to get a little bit less extreme weather. Did you actually see them? Or is it possible that another some sort of threat wiped them out? I have seen them, but they won't let anyone near their camp. To be quite honest, they're being quite cagey, and nobody can figure it out. Well, we are very private people. Well, I guess maybe maybe that's all it is. And uh, then she continues to eat her food, and you continue to, to chat. Brinby and Pine. Is there anything you want to discuss with Brinby, Pine? Oh man, there are so many questions. So I, I'll, I'll just start in. So I wasn't even sure if you had survived the sacking of Redleaf. As you probably heard, I suffered grievous injuries. And by the time I was awake, it was time for a tribunal and I was discharged. It, it, honorably discharged, but I was, I was no longer privy to any 
any military information or matters of national security. He looks you over and he looks down at your sword at your belt and he says, well, it, it looks like they let you keep something. It was somewhat amicable, but it was also very um, sudden and forced. But you survived. Where did, so t- tell me, last, last I remember, I was sending you down from the wall down into the city, away from the trees. So the, the last time I saw you, I just sent you down from the wall. The airships were approaching, um, ready for their bombardment, and we'd, I'd ordered the cannons to fire on them. But I got all of the other um, non-essential soldiers from the walls, um, and you were leading them. Yes, I remember, I remember a lot about that day. The thing I remember most about that day is actually the last thing I saw you do before that shield exploded. Yes, I know exactly what you're referring to. I want you to know that for a long time, I hated you for that. I thought this man who I looked up to is false, a fraud. And it wasn't until I had to take charge and become a leader that I now see what you did was not only right, but necessary. It was a, it was a shame. It was a shame that it had to come to that, but I couldn't have everyone deserting. It would have... What slim chance we had would have been completely erased. He, he puts his hand on your shoulder and he says, Lieutenant General, can you forgive me for doubting you? If you can forgive me for not finding you sooner. He nods and he says, I, I can't blame you for not finding me. I, I never left Redleaf. I stayed. I resisted. I hid. I attacked from the shadows. I got caught. And then he points to the brand on his arm. And the brand looks like a sword that is broken. I don't know. Pine, you can make a history check if you want to. I only rolled an eight. You, I mean, I don't think you've seen this before. You've seen brandings before, but you don't know what this one specifically means. Okay. But usually brands on, usually brands on people means prisoner or slave. Yeah, and you, can, so, you, you kind of gather that. Probably this brand means that he was caught fighting the Empire. And so now, you know, he, he's been branded a rebel, um, but not necessarily uh, killed. Maybe he was given a pardon. Um, but he goes on to explain that, you know, he was caught there in Redleaf and he spent uh, a good deal of time in uh, war camps and in prisons. And it wasn't until the end of the war with Menarest that... Uh, he was released, but upon his release, he was given that brand. We all take a little bit of home with us everywhere we go, don't we? Yes, we do. We do. Hmm. I miss men arrest. It turns my stomach that I must call it Colinium now. <sighs> yes. Well, the name men arrest might get you in trouble out there, but in my heart, it will always be men arrest. <sighs> and then he says, the lords preserve and the ladies protect. And through balance, victory. And then, uh, if it's cool, Pine will start singing the uh, the Menarest National Anthem. I think that's awesome. I wrote it, guys. <laughs> no, like, nice. legit, like, I saw sheet music. <laughs> that's awesome. Okay, Get, here we go. All right. To the four, oh, sons and daughters, heirs of knowledge, life, and law, Days of triumph are your birthright. The despot and tyrant are put to flame. Hark your banners drape the heavens. Marvel to see them cover the skies. Your enemies tremble, your might absolute. They dare not evoke your terrible name. They dare not evoke your terrible name. Men arrest, oh men arrest, our patriot hearts we pledge to thee. The lords preserve, the ladies protect, and through balance victory. The lords preserve, the ladies protect, and through balance victory. That was awesome. 
<laughs> that was great. Um, as you finish up, Brinby, in his deep, deep voice, he he joins you for the the final refrain: um, the the Lord's preserve, the ladies protect, and through balance victory, which is a common uh, mantra that you would hear amongst soldiers and in like political dealings uh, in the country of Menarest. Very good. Okay, awesome. Very cool. Yeah, you and Brinby get to share that little moment where you um, you kind of reconnect. Roos, you are sitting next to Kira. Yep. She is just eating. It's almost like she's ignoring you, but not like her back's not turned to you. She's sitting next to you and she's eating without acknowledging you. Yeah, Roos is feeling pretty awkward himself and just eating very quietly, occasionally like trying to look at her. Mm -hmm. And then when she doesn't look at him, he just goes back to his meal. And, and you're sitting to her left. And so every time you look over at her, you see in, in your in your session zero, as I recall, the last thing that you saw was her reeling back and her her clothes and her skin and her hair were all aflame. And when you look at her and you see these scars like that's that's what you remember. I imagine that was about a year ago. I imagine that you you thought she was dead. Yeah, Roos Roos was convinced she was dead. And it's it's the reason that he can't write letters to his mom because he thought that he was the reason that she died. As you're sitting there eating quietly, finally Kira says, without looking at you, she says, so how'd you survive the explosion of the broken promise? I'm, I'm not sure. It was a fall that, that should have killed me, but one of the tricks I've picked up with Howling Talon, I, I can fall slowly if I need to. And that's how I survived. The only trick was is once I got down to the water, I had to keep Gigi afloat, so I put her on my head to swim back to shore. She she finally looks over at you and she goes, You you still have that lizard? Yeah. Yeah, I, I love Gigi. She's my, my best friend. And I'll pull Gigi out of my pocket and place her on my shoulder. How would Gigi react to Kira? They they are familiar with each other. I'm sure that that as a kid she saw me with my my pet regularly. Gigi may not recognize Kira at this point because it's been a number of years and the last time we met was very, very briefly. I don't even know if she even came out of your pocket during that whole ordeal. Gigi did to pick the lock, but she failed. That's right. And then that's why, that's right. She picked the lock. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you can tell this story if you want to, or we can keep it a secret, but that was pretty good. Yeah. Okay. As you're sitting there, um, she kind of reaches over, she scritches uh, Gigi under the chin. And uh, I imagine Gigi kind of tips her head back, like, you know, kind of saying, give me more, give me more type of a thing, encouraging more little scritches until finally Gigi actually kind of steps out onto Kira's hand. And then they share a little moment. As Gigi's on Kira's hand, Kira then asks you again without looking at you, so how's mom? She's not in a good situation right now. Tabori is on lockdown, and unless I help them find you, they'll start killing people. Find me? Well, not not you in particular, but your organization. Find Falling Heaven. Yeah, they're looking for Fallen Heaven, and they have intel that, that you're here. And my group, the Howling Talon, we had intel as well. We weren't certain that it was, it was valid, but I was sent to investigate. I tend to be good at finding you and I like hope that it comes off of as, as a joke, but I don't think it did. Why don't you make a, uh, like a persuasion check? We'll say difficulty 15 because you do have a little bit of a rough spot there. Bruce rolled an 11. You see her just kind of ignore that comment. Like there's not like a little laugh. There's not like a cringe, nothing. She just ignores it like you didn't say anything, which is almost worse. She finishes her last bite of, of stew, um, stands up and says, all right, it's time to talk business. Gather up. What intel do we have? And they start to discuss different aspects of Fallen Heaven. But the short guy who uh, has not introduced himself, uh, but you find out through conversation, his name is Hebo. He quickly interrupts and says to Kira, the, the white widow, he says, are you sure we can trust these guys? Kira looks over at your group and makes eye contact again with Ruth and says, can we trust these guys? 
You can trust them more than you can trust me. I'll vouch for the bandaged one. At this point in time, I think, uh, you know, Ebby's kind of been hanging out in back and there's been kind of some more personal conversation. So I think after a few minutes, Ebby probably has like started wandering a little bit over in the cave and is maybe like, I'm imagining that maybe he found like the rock nest of some cave dwelling bird and is overlooking at it and maybe whistling slightly to it. Okay. Yeah, perfect. All right. So you're kind of over over in the corner all by yourself and uh, you have those goggles. So you're probably out in the dark and nobody even knows where you are. Like you just kind of wander outside of the uh, firelight and, you know, they can hear a little whistling. Nari? Um, I will look at her and I'll tell her that I was working with the Rose Syndicate um, and I've been looking for Fallen Heaven. We have some things to discuss. She says, very good. And she looks back at Hebo and she says... I think we can trust them. So, what brings you to our safe house? Well, it, it all started when I screwed up. No, I don't, I don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Pine will say, um, kind of giving a rundown of his and Ebby's um, activities in Tabory. Fallen Heaven, as far as anyone knew, was miles away from Tabory. Tabory was unaffected by the war, and uh, so many people were complacent. Ebby and I here, we we started to produce a tract occasionally and posted around Tabory, which caught the attention of, of the Empire eventually, and with their intelligence that Fallen Heaven was somewhere nearby in the, in the woods, they assumed that I had a connection to them. But as far as I knew... Fallen Heaven wasn't uh, was a hundred leagues away. At the mention of those these recent events, Ebby kind of meanders his way back <laughs> towards the group. Right, and as you mentioned, the tract actually Kira pulls one out that you had written, and she says, "Is this your handwork handiwork?" Well, Ebby and I, yes, we worked together. Mm-hmm. It was mostly pine. She says, "She says you you do have a way with words. You're here because the empire is in Tabory, and you needed to find us." It it would seem that the empire wants the empire is looking for fallen heaven, and they would like fallen heaven. And I I am assuming you, based on the conversations I've overheard, delivered to them to free the people of Tabory. I have no intention of delivering fallen heaven to them. But I was hoping we could find you and work out some kind of a a plan to liberate the people of Tabory. She glances around the cave and she motions to the three men that came in with her and then Brinby and Hebo and Delon. And she says, well, this is my army. Fallen heaven, are they decentralized or am I assuming this is fallen heaven like in enti- in its entirety? This would be like a decentralized cell of fallen heaven, more than likely. Fallen heaven is an organization that is uh, quote unquote feared throughout the entire empire by the empire. Okay. Uh, imperial citizens will tell their children at night stories. Hey, you better go to bed or else fallen heaven might get you and take you away to become a rebel. That kind of thing. They have the French resistance, yeah, the, yeah, right? Yeah, they are. They are. They're stealing weapons from officers in Paris. Yeah, right. Right. This is a classic resistance movement, decentralized. But it, it appears that Kira is the white widow and she is the leader of this cell. The adjudicator is is keeping citizens in the stocks and they gave us a whole week to find you before they started hanging people. That was three days ago. By my estimation, we're a two days journey out of the city, so we've got two days before they start killing people. Not only that, we had an ally who helped get us out of the city, and I fear he may not be in a good way either. He put his neck on the line to let us out. She starts thinking about it. She says, well, we had no plans to move on Tabory, we're actually here for a, a different reason. What, do, what? What? Why are you here? This is. This seems so far away from any important strategic um, target. Yes, it does seem far away from strategic targets. However, we have reason to believe there might be a very strategic target here, close. We just have to find it. Would this, by chance, have anything to do with the? Uh, deposed heir 
of the previous kingdom. She looks over at you appraisingly, Abby. And this is actually kind of the first time she's really looked over in your direction. She says, that is possible. There have been rumors and there have been leads and we are following up on them. But it seems that for you, Tabory is a much more pressing matter. Tell me, and I don't mean to sound rude, but why should Fallen Heaven help Tabory? when Tabri has done nothing to resist the Empire at all. The only person I know of who resisted the Empire is standing here in this cave with me, and she looks over at Pine and, and Ebby. Why should we risk our lives for Tabri, a perfectly content Imperial city? But they aren't anymore. This is, the, this is your chance to grow the movement. They are currently suffering under the Empire's thumb, and it could very quickly turn to bloodshed. She thinks about that for a second, and then she says, it sounds to me like the people of Tabori are reaping what they've sown. The people of Tabori were prisoners without being aware they were in prison, and now their jailer has arrived and is going to exact some harsh penalties for their crimes. My crimes. Roller persuasion check, Pine. I rolled a 14. Plus five, but only a 14. She nods at what you have to say. You don't know that you've swayed her at all, but she did listen without turning you away outright. Roos says, Kira, how can you be so callous? Our mother is in the city, and she very likely could die because of this. She thinks about that for a second and then says... Mother gave up on me long ago. Mother was content in her imperial coffin. The city of Tabori has been too content, fat, and lazy for far too long with its imperial overseers. And now, now, the deal that they made with the empire, now they're seeing the negative effects of it. And now you want me to risk my one, two, three, four, five, six, six men, as well as myself, for Tabori? I'm not convinced. I'm not asking you to save Tabory. I'm asking you to help me save our mother. Make a... We'll have you make a persuasion check. Roos rolled a nine. She she doesn't seem like she's completely shut the idea out, but she's going to take some convincing. She says, what would you have Fallen Heaven do? What can we do? It sounds to me like what you've told me is that the only way to end what's happening in Tabri is for me and my men here to go and turn ourselves in. Is that what you would have me do? No. I want to give them a reasonable enough lead to have them divert their attention away from the city so that we can help people escape. That way, I'm not turning you in again, but we're also getting the people in the city enough time to to get out. I could even tell them about this cave. I could give them leads to to whatever whatever you think might be a reasonable lead for them. That way that thins out the number of, of soldiers in the city and we might be able to make a difference from there. She kind of shakes her head and she says, the city is full of mouths to feed and it's autumn moving towards fall. Snow is falling up here in the mountains. Where will they go? If they leave Tabury and head to another city or another town or some of these farms that are out here, they're still in Imperial hands. If we could get the Empire soldiers, if we could get that contingent to leave Tabury, to follow another lead, leave the people of Tabury in their homes. When you mention getting the soldiers to leave the city and give them something else to chase. She said, what would you recommend that we have them chase? Us, Fallen Heaven? Would you put them on the trail of the heir of Everlyn, which we cannot afford for them to get? I'm not asking you to do that. If we point them to this cave here and we leave enough clues pointing them to some other part of the world, we could get them out of this corner of, of Tabory for good. We just have to have you leave some some false trails and evidence that might send them elsewhere. I'm listening. That may work. I, however, I don't want to lose this. And she she kind of motions around inside the cave. We have too too much of our supplies are here. But I understand what you're saying. Um, this is definitely something that we can we can discuss. 
So here's what's going to happen. Unless somebody else wants to chime in, you guys will have a uh, a meeting here with Fallen Heaven, with Kira and the rest of the Fallen Heaven folks, and you will uh, come up with a plan. So I guess what I want to know, without having to go into too much detail, like actual conversation between players and NPCs, what do you guys want to do? How do you want to approach this? I think Pine would Pine would definitely appeal to their history of basically being a, a clandestine, sneaky, um, terrorist-ic group and basically say, you guys would know better how to lay a false trail um, than, than I would, being that my history is, you know, face-to-face battle on the field. I think Ebby would probably... I think he would kind of think or try to appeal to the fact that, yeah, maybe, maybe Tabory was too complacent and not involved enough in resisting the empire, but they represent perhaps even hundreds of small towns and hamlets throughout the empire. And if resistance is able to take hold here and thwart the imperial plans here, then that can serve as a, as a plan or a roadmap that could be duplicated potentially in you know, many dozens of other cities. Sort of use Tabri as a type, as, as a type of insurrection or rebellion or, um, or uh, a pattern to follow other places. Okay. Yeah. And perhaps even instill some hope in some of those other beleaguered cities that, hey, if they could do it, maybe we can, you know, stand up and resist. Right. Well, and one thing that you guys realize too, having spent time in Tabri and Roos having been raised in Tabri, is that Tabri has been complacent because there has been no imperial presence there, right? They've been an imperial province, I mean, imperial um, city, pretty much in name only, right? They're so far out from the rest of the province, 15 to 30 soldiers were there, and then there was a magister, and that was pretty much it. Uh, for, you know, Roos, as long as you can remember, um, that's all the presence that they had out there in, uh, I guess, in the five years that Tabri... Wait, actually, you weren't there, were you? You weren't there when Tabri fell. I was not, no. I was... Uh, Roos was uh, training to be a bounty hunter. Well, we'll say Pine, uh, you were there. And so, you you know that there hasn't really been an Imperial presence. Abby, you've been there too. So um, that's why they've been so complacent because they haven't had to stand up because really nothing in their life had changed except for they had to stop saying one name for a country and start saying a different name. Any other ideas? Um, I mean, I would just mention that the the soldiers already seem to know that fallen heavens in this area. So we might as well use it as a time to deflect them someplace else since it seems like she's planning on spending some time here anyway. Okay. Um, I would also mention that uh, having spoken with Bert and knowing that not only him, but others, especially of like the local town guard, feel they, they sympathize with the, the the pamphlets that I've been leaving around, the tracks that um, Abby and I have been leaving around. So it's not that they are com- 100% complacent. They never, they've, there is potential for more to rise up than just we four from Tabory. Right. And I think that as you're talking, you also will bring up the point that, you know, this is now the time where these people of Tabory are most likely to rise up because now they are seeing the negative impacts of the empire where Kira is. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, Kira is looking at it like they didn't fight with us when things were good. So why should we help them now that times are bad? And you guys are bringing up, well, times are bad. So now they will start fighting with you and they're more likely to stay with you when times are good. There's this back and forth and back and forth. And as you guys discuss things through the night, you uh, you come up with some kind of a plan. Uh, the rough outline, as far as I'm understanding it, is you would try to give up this cave, saying that you found this cave as a base of fallen heaven, direct the empire to this cave or somewhere else around here in this general area. And then the fallen heaven soldiers and Kira would basically leave clues that would leave lead somewhere else. Yes. Okay. Roos would basically offer his assistance in tracking people down and how to make good clues and like things that he would be looking for if he were tracking someone and like basically just helping them create false leads. It seems like you guys kind of come up with this plan and you're able to, 
through some discussion and through Brinby uh, repeatedly, you know, he doesn't like really speak up, but he'll kind of look at Kira and say, come on, come on, you know, he'll kind of do that thing, you know, like, yeah, come on. Oh, you make a good point. You know, he helps out your side to convince her that this is something that um, would benefit everybody uh, and hinder the empire more than the other option of just leaving Tabory to rot. You guys, as you're discussing, you sense some serious resentment and angst in Kira. Roos, you knew her best. Is this something that was with her all the time or is this something that's new? This angst? Yeah. So Roos is a bit younger than than Kira. So I don't think he would remember it as well or maybe not understand. Uh, he would not have understand as a younger kid the angst that she had. Maybe maybe Roos's perception was that she was maybe a little moody. He wasn't really old enough when she left the house to, to understand the, these sort of emotions real well. Well, and she left and she never came back. Yeah, and then Roos only met her one other time. And that was a great time. <laughs> Pardon me, two other times. Okay, yeah, that's true. Yes, it was two other times and um, neither one of them were very good. You and Kira, ha- you, you, you sense... Bruce, as you and Kira are kind of reconnecting, that your connection that you have with her is more about you both recognizing that you should have a connection as brother and sister than actually having a connection. The Bruce can feel that and he's like super awkward around her because he doesn't know how to how to engage with her anymore. It's like when someone tells you blood is thicker than water and then you meet your third cousin for the first time and you're like, well, I guess we're supposed to be friends because, you know, we're cousins or whatever. Uh, that's kind of the impression that I'm getting about Roos and Kira's relationship. Okay, so you you discuss into the night. Uh, at one point, Kira like talks to one of, the, one of the soldiers that's with her, one of the three no-name soldiers that came along with her. And she has a couple of them go out and start doing some things out, outside to kind of like cover tracks. As you're talking, Kira also mentions that their plan is to go further into the mountains because they're they, they've been looking for this heir to the Everland throne. All leads have continued north up Mount Tabor and into the into the Glass Mountains. As the conversation dies down, it kind of groups off into different groups. People are talking amongst themselves. Ebby, as night starts to fall, some people are starting to curl up on on their on their bedrolls. You see that uh, Kira is kind of over in the corner talking with Nari, and Nari, we're going to get to that in just a second. Pine and Brinby are sharing some some stories or something. They're having a little conversation. Roos is talking with uh, with Hebo about like part of their their his craft with tracking people. Ebby, you're sitting there in kind of the corner thinking about what to do and ways you can contribute and your mind starts to wander. And Abby, as you're sitting there, you suddenly you hear a familiar voice. It's old and it's faint, but you hear, you hear this. It's a question you hear. Why, why was it you? Why, why would it have been you? And you recognize Neam's voice. It's good to hear you again. Can you hear me? He says, you, you're, you're the one that woke up. Why, why would it have been you? Why would you awaken while the others slumber on? Who am I? He says, who are you? What is your name? I go by Ebby now. He cuts you off. He says, Ebby? Ebby, no. No, that's not right. Too short. Your name is longer, methinks. And then abruptly he changes the subject and he says, I've been down there before. Yes, I, th- I think I have. Her name was Shendra. Shendra? Was she another like me? He is no longer listening to you. It appears that he is now reliving a conversation from his past. His voice becomes stronger, younger. And you hear him say, there, you see, it worked. She's in there and there she will stay. Then he pauses like he's listening for a response. He says, of course she will. She's probably more committed to this than you and me put together. She'll keep it safe. Trust me and trust her. 
again, there's this sense of, you can almost hear the little murmur of somebody talking to Neum, but you can't hear what it said. It's almost just a little in the background, a buzz in your ear. And then you hear him say, well, you know better than I do, but we can both agree that as of today, the die has been cast. We cannot turn back now. For better or for worse, this is it. And then he gets really firm and really confident in his voice. He says, this will work. Today, we have saved Pavantis. And the conversation ends. And then there is nothing. I just got chills. My nipples are really hard right now. <laughs> that was an unexpected uh, reaction to chills. I mean, that, that makes two of us right now. So, hey. <laughs> All right. So uh, I imagine Ebby is pondering that conversation that he had. It seemed like part of it was he was aware of you. And the other part was definitely he was reliving something, something from long ago. Um, why don't you make an insight check? I would like to make an insight check. Yes, please. I rolled an 18. When he was talking about having been down there before, you are almost certain he's talking about that facility that you were in earlier today. Hmm. Very cool. Okay. Hopefully you got everything that he said. And if you don't just go ahead and re-listen to this episode. So I, so seeing Ebby kind of off by himself, I think Pine would try to inc- like talk about his past when he's talking with Brinby, you know, talk about his, like, what, what he's been up to with Ebby and Ebby, how great Ebby's been um, helping with, with their, their endeavor um, and kind of try to coax Ebby over to join the conversation, um, especially after seeing him space out like that. But at, at, a, at another point when it's opportune, Pine would also recommend seeing if we can put the wall back up and making it look like, uh, hopefully try to make it look like there is not another passage back here. Yeah. Uh, Brinby agrees. Yes, that sounds like the best plan. Ebby, do you go join Brinby and Pine? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, I'll probably take a couple minutes to kind of zone out. But after a moment of hearing, you know, Pine mention my name or talk about things going on in Tabory, he'll probably zone back in and then walk over to Pine and them and then help them rebuild the wall. Okay, you guys are rebuilding the wall. Uh, Nari, you are having a conversation with Kira. And Kira asks you, she says, so, Nari, that's your name, right? Yes. You you mentioned working for the Rose Syndicate. Yes, I was over in Arkelvy. In Arkelvy? Yeah. Do you want me to just give a quick brief uh, recap? Or do you want to kind of keep that to yourself? No, no, you can give a brief recap. That's great. Session zero with Nari. Uh, Nari was a bouncer at a tavern, but also worked for this group called the Rose Syndicate, which... It was a group of ladies of the night who gathered information from imperial sources and passed it along to Fallen Heaven. As you recall, so you were not one of the ladies of the night. You were not one of the prostitutes. But you right, would no. gather, you'd gather info from one guy in particular. Yeah, his name was Vince. Vince was an imperial uh, intelligence officer. And he came up to you and it was, do you remember, do you remember him? Yeah, poor Vince. Yeah, poor Vince. Well, he came up to you one day and he said he had some information for you, something that was very important. The Empire was going to move on Fallen Heaven in the city that night. Like it was very important. So you left work, you went, you met with your contact, her name, uh, Aaliyah Brava, um, a very, very sensual, very smooth, very half snake woman. Well, I found my notes, and I do have Sneaky Bitch written next to Aaliyah Brava, so. <laughs> think, think Blue from Breath of Fire, if you know that game, minus the magical powers. Just kind of, <laughs> she's got that snake charm. Yeah, so many, so many strange feelings from Blue. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so confused. Yeah, we don't, we don't need to go into all of that. But anyway, she, you told her the information, and she sent you on your way, and then all of a sudden the members of the Rose Syndicate started getting attacked in the city. Um, you saw that Vince had been hung out in front of the castle uh, in Arklevy, the the provincial capital. And then, as I recall, you had two good friends there in Arklevy. You had 
Ember. Ember. Who, yeah. yes, the the tall, dyed red hair dominatrix, if you will. And then you had another friend. Do you remember her name by any chance? Yes, I will. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was trying to find my notes, and I don't know what I did with Okay, it's all, all good. It's then. all good. She was um, short, kind of waif-like. Is, it, Ember was working in like one of the more seedy taverns, and this other woman, Nilla, she was working in one of the uh, more very rich um, and more extravagant uh, brothels in town. So you had two friends, Ember and Nilla, and you had the time to go and get one of them uh, to help one of them. And you ended up helping Ember. And then you and Ember managed to get out of the city. Yeah, that's basically, there was other stuff. There was more information that was shared. There was uh, there was one one point in particular that, was, uh, that I thought was, was pretty cool. But we'll save that for another time. So yeah, that's basically what happened in your session zero. So Kira is now asking you about the Rose Syndicate. Yeah, so I'm basically just going to tell her... Um, Pretty much most of that, that I went to meet um, Aaliyah Brava and tell her that I heard that the Empire was going to be striking the city that night. But she just kind of told me not to worry about it. And the next thing I knew, we were all being attacked. So we we booked it out of the city as quick as possible. And then now I'm looking for uh, Fall in Heaven, figure out what's next. She says, yeah, I've, I've heard of the Rose Syndicate. We got a lot of good intel from the Rose Syndicate until they went quiet about, oh, what, three weeks ago? Is that when this attack happened? Yeah, that would be about right. Do you know who your main contact was? And you mentioned Aaliyah Brava. Waist down, very sinuous and... and Snaky? Yes, she was our main contact. Huh. Well, we'll have to, we'll have to unravel that knot after this one's taken care of. All right. Well, thank you. I appreciate your inf- your information. As you as the night ends, you have been talking, sharing stories, discussing what you guys want to do the uh, the next day to get everything prepped and ready because you're kind of running out of time to get everything ready before uh, people start to hang in Tabory. So you talk deep into the night. Some of you go to bed early. Some of you might uh, stay up and chat by the fire. Um, you have people guarding the entrance so everyone can get a nice, good, long rest. After everyone f- after everyone finally goes to sleep and everyone gets a long rest, everyone is now level four. And that's where we're going to stop for today. I hope everybody enjoyed this episode of the Crystal Codex with the 12-sided guys. That was intense, Paul. That was mm-hmm. intense. I feel, ugh, geez. I'm a little bit emotionally drained. well it's a good thing that we're going to stop now then because we got some stuff coming up that we gotta we gotta have some energy for join us next time when we jump right back in and we see what happens with the beleaguered city of tabri and our band of four heroes until then have a good night